Well, I want to I want to talk about love, and nothing could be more associated with mothers and motherhood than love. But love comes first and foremost from God. And in the book of Romans, in that letter that Paul wrote to the ancient Roman Christians, we find an extraordinary discourse on the reality of God's love, its beauty, its power, and its purpose, especially in Romans chapter 8. Let's come to the word at this time, and as we do so, let's come before the Lord, asking him to open us to the openness of his word. Lord, we come to your word with expectation today. That is the real and certain hope that your word is alive and would be active in us by your living spirit, that in the name of Jesus Christ, your word and your love would dwell richly within us and unite us one to another in you and for you, in your purposes, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, as you fill us with your word, which was inspired by the Spirit and in which the Spirit still lives. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom to rightly understand your word and to actively apply it in our lives for your name's sake, for your glory, and for your purposes. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ, these things are sure. Amen and amen. My wife, Hazel, is a beautiful woman. Talaga? It's true. When was Hazel most beautiful in my eyes? Well, right now. <laughs> That's the right answer, isn't it? But you know, it's because when I look at her right now, I see more than just her in this moment. I see the Lord in her and on her. And I know the history of the Lord through her. I know the history of her love for me. I know how we've grown together over the years. I can see in my memory moments in which her beauty shines, not just that physical beauty which she has, no question about it, but an even greater radiant beauty within which is her love. Now, the outward body, I'm not talking about hers at all, I'm talking about mine, goes from bad to worse <laughs> as we get older and things just seem to slide, shall we say. But inside, the beauty of love never fades. In fact, one of the glorious things about aging, my, we were passing by an establishment this morning on the drive-in that said it was founded in 1972, which happens to be the birth year of some people in the room. And uh, Hazel said, oh, look at that, that club's about to be 50 years old. Commentary ensued about the age of other things. And uh, my children seem to take much delight in the fact that five decades looms before my wife and I very shortly. But I think that's wonderful. I'm grateful to God for five decades. And I pray that however many years more he may give, though my outward... Uh, Appearance may sag and suffer. Inside, may the love of God grow brighter within me. So there's moments I can remember in my looking at Hazel in which there was such a beauty of that inner love matched by that outer grace. I can remember the first time that we talked in the parking lot of the prayer chapel. And I remember her beauty in that moment. I certainly remember when she stood at the far end of that aisle of the church and advanced towards me and towards the altar and towards marriage. Well, no turning back now. <laughs> she was beautiful in that moment. But if I think about when she was most beautiful, it wasn't when she was all made up in makeup, hair finely positioned and dress beautifully displayed. She was lying in a hospital bed, face contorted in pain and experiencing an inner pain so profound that it produces outer groanings. It was when she was giving birth that I have in my mind indelibly the image of her most beautiful to me because she was in pain and she was smiling. Really. 
You may not believe that a woman in labor could smile, but I'm here to tell you it happens. Hazel smiled in both of the deliveries of our children, and it was because of the joy inside of her about the life inside of her that was being revealed. So she was very much experiencing pain, but even in that pain, she was filled with love. And it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen because I didn't expect to see a smile on her face during delivery, especially with the first child. I think it's fair to say, I don't think I'm revealing anything, that Hazel had a little bit of apprehension going into that first delivery as any mother would. And I had apprehension too. I had heard about how women sometimes respond and anything's fair game in that moment because I don't have the personal experience, but from what I'm told, it is the worst kind of pain to suffer through. It is an extraordinarily intense pain, and it's not those little short deliveries that they show you on TV. It's hours and hours, sometimes days, and of course, it can be quite dangerous. So it's a serious thing for a mother to give birth, and it is a painful thing for a mother to give birth, but in the case of my wife, at least, and I think this can be applied more generally. It is a beautiful thing. And I think that it was most beautiful to me because I knew what she was going through was difficult. And yet I saw the sincerity of her joy. And so that, that was a picture of God to me. And it's been an image that I'll never forget and that has inspired me. And it seemed to me the right image on Mother's Day to begin with especially as we come to the middle section of Romans chapter 8, which talks about birth pangs. <laughs> Will you say that phrase, birth pangs? You know what that is? It's labor pains. It's cramping. It's pushing. It's wearying. It's excruciating. And it's not over. Even when you feel like it's over, it's not over. I do recall there was one point where Hazel, even in all of her joy, said, I'm done. And they were like, well, actually, hate to break it to you, but you're not. And she was kind of like, well, actually, hate to tell you, but I am. I'm done. And they were like, no, you got to keep going. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you feel like, I can't do this anymore. It's killing me. Maybe you feel like the pain is too much and I'm too exhausted. Maybe you're worn out. And you just feel like, I can't continue. Pastor Hinge, you talked about the Holy Spirit, the great helper. I remember those nurses and the doctor saying, you can do it. Come on, one more push, even though you know it's not one more push. <laughs> How many times did they say one more push? It was like, who's counting here? <laughs> Hazel was counting. <laughs> That's more than one more push. Well, do one more, do one more, one more. Coming, coming, coming. coming. <laughs> Crowning. Now, who has been crowned? Christ. And his spirit is saying to you, come on, breathe, push, go. You can do it because there is life that is being revealed through you. The seed of the father born in the womb of our lives, carried out through the pain and the struggle. But these present sufferings are nothing to be compared with the glory that is being revealed. The love of the Father is not only the source of the life, it is the spirit of help who enables us to carry forward in that life with that hope to an overwhelming victory. I want to talk about the love that intercedes today. And as I do so, I remind you of this overarching structure that we are seeing in the scriptures of Romans chapter 8. I have to check my watch because the clock at the rear of the room is not right. And if I go off of that clock, then, well, I said it earlier in the service, there is no clock. I guess the Lord is just proving me right. But for your sake, I will pay attention to the time. So Romans chapter 8. We talked about this as a beautiful discussion or demonstration of God's love. And you might have thought last week when I offered this synopsis that it was just 
some rather florid poetic language, an extraordinary discourse on the beauty, power, and purpose of the love of God in Christ. These phrases are familiar in church. If you're a churchgoer or have been, you hear these kinds of things, and there's a danger that you and I can start to kind of grow numb to them. But there's a real truth or set of truths operating here that are powerful and that are helpful. In fact, even we could say necessary to a proper understanding of what it is that God wants. In other words, they're not only beautiful, they're also powerful for a purpose. And so those are the three things that I would suggest are on offer, especially here in chapter 8. There is an initial section in which we see an examination of the beauty of God's love, how beautiful it is in its inspirational quality, and in fact, in in its actual accomplishment. There is also an ongoing power delivery system that you and I not only can but should be plugged into. In fact, I want to say that if you are unplugged from the Spirit, you are ill-equipped, you are unable to really live in the full experience of the love of God and reveal that love to others, which is God's purpose. God's purpose for you is that you should live and multiply, that you would be alive and fruitful. That was his purpose from the beginning. Now, God, who has that purpose in mind, has given the power of his spirit so that it could be accomplished. But all of this would be stillborn if it were not for the salvation that comes through Christ. The most beautiful demonstration of God's love for us is the love of God in Christ. And that phrase, in Christ, is really the kind of comprehensive concept of Romans 8, that you and I are called to be in Christ, and Christ has determined to be in us. Now then, he is in us through his spirit. So the spirit of Christ is in us, and the spirit of Christ calls us to live in the spirit. You'll notice that it is this reciprocity over and over again. You in Christ, Christ in you. You in the spirit, the spirit in you. You in God, and God in you. The love of God that overcomes the reality of sin and the penalty of death is the love that is on offer for us in Christ. Coming into Christ is receiving the love of God that overcomes our sin and death and our shame. Now, there is condemnation outside of God, Because outside of God, there is neither life nor purposefulness. There is only futility, vanity, death and destruction. And God's judgment comes against those things so that those things would be brought down. We want God's judgment on death because if God doesn't judge death, who will? Only God can and will and has and does judge death to be worthy of death itself. So God puts to death sin and disease, and he brings his condemnation on it. But if you and I are living in sin, then we are living in death, as it were, or death is living in us, and the condemnation of God comes on us unless we receive Christ. And then being brought into Christ, the favor of God comes upon us because there is no condemnation of God in Christ. That is beautiful, isn't it? It's good news, and it's a glorious vision of God's truth. But simply knowing it and even believing it does not empower us unless the Holy Spirit within us is also interceding for us. So as we receive God's love that overcomes in Christ, Christ gives us what the Father has promised, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit enables us to reveal to the world around us the love that intercedes with groanings too deep to be uttered. Now, this is glorious and beautiful, but it is also powerful and functional and necessary because we are groaning 
and the world around us is groaning. And in Romans chapter 8, what Paul is doing is using the metaphor of a woman in labor to describe the reality of our present circumstance, which is what you can see is, if you think of all creation like a woman, that creation is groaning. There are contractions. There, is, there are storms. There is pain. There is an outcry of injustice. But what Paul and really the Holy Spirit are asking us to see is what isn't seen. So on that, that day when Hazel was laying in that bed, I couldn't yet see the child that she could so very well feel. All I could see was her. Now I saw that she was in pain, but in the midst of that pain, and I knew that she was in labor, I also saw that she was in love with this life that was coming forth from her. And in that beauty, I saw power and strength. That's what God wants you to be to the world around you. The world around you can't see God, but they can see his life in you. And in fact, if you are suffering and yet his love is shining through you, they can see it all the better, which is part of the purpose to which God has put us. In other words, you say, well, why doesn't God take me out of this? Because God is not going to abort what he is bringing to life. You say, well, I'm done, but he's not. And in fact, what God says to you is, no, you're not. And you can keep going. And it's not just him cheering you on. It's him inside you leading you on, giving you the ability to be more than a conqueror. What's more victorious than a woman who has gone through labor and brought forth a healthy child. You want to see a vision of joy and triumph? Look at a mother holding her newborn child. They're covered in blood and sweat and tears, and they're beaming. Well, the baby is crying, but the mother is beaming. Now, you and I, maybe we, as children of God, weep and mourn, but what God says is, mourning lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Mourning of sorrow lasts for the night, but the light of the sun of the morning comes at dawn. There's a purpose that God has, not only for you and I, but for all of creation. Say, so why do we live in such a world where such things happen? Why is there disease and death? Why cancer? Why COVID? Why pandemics? Why, why should there be wars and rumors of wars? Why such division? Why such confusion? Romans chapter 8 tells us that part of the reason is that God is in the midst of that interceding for the revealing of a better purpose. And it's the power of God that brings that purpose to pass. So I want to come to the middle section of Romans chapter 8 today in the second of the three messages that we're doing on this particular chapter and talk about the love that intercedes. Once again here, I'm going to say there's three main points that we'll go through in about equivalent uh, passages of text. Verses 18 to 22 talks about creation, and in each of these sections, we are told someone or something is groaning. As I said, Paul's extending the metaphor. He's saying, okay, you understand that a woman in labor groans, but something good is coming out of it. So look around you, and you see creation, and you see that creation is groaning. But why? If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the Bible actually talks about the source of the pain of childbirth. Now, before somebody thinks, boy, this sounds like a really misogynistic, sexist thing that I'm about to say, which is that sin is the author of pain in childbirth, I want to remind you that sin is the author of every pain for men and women both and for all the world. In Genesis chapter 3, when our mother and father and we were in them, because that's where life comes from. It comes through the line, the tree of family. In them, they did what you and I have done ourselves over and over again. They rejected what God said. They disobeyed what God wanted. They went against God's purpose. And God had said, when you do, it will introduce death. In the day that you eat of it, death comes. And that death brings division between men and women and people. Division in the spirit, the enemy of your soul, the devil, was at work that day and he is still at work in this day trying to deceive 
However, God said, even though that serpent snake, Satan, he's going to keep on biting at the heel of humanity, humanity will crush his head. And you know, that's a promise of God that is revealed in Christ and is carried out in the spirit for the purpose of the will of the Father. So there were many things that came under a curse. The land. God said, you're going to have to work very hard, Adam, in sweat and toil to make something fruitful out of the land. And God said to the woman, female Adam, who came to be known as Eve, you are going to be in pain bringing forth life from your womb. So all humanity has sinned and all humanity experiences the hardships of it. It is a result of sin. There is corruption, decay. The second law of thermodynamics says that hot things grow cold and cold things warm up and that organized things ultimately grow chaotic. And that is the nature of the reality. But that is not the purpose of God. That is a reflection of a fallen reality, of a corrupted creation. And yet God says, I have something inside that starts like a seed, but it grows and overwhelms that. It overcomes that with salvation. Now, you and I, if we are in Christ, we know that even if creation has storms and diseases and wars and divisions and deceit all around us, even if our own bodies, like I said earlier, are growing weaker day by day, Nevertheless, our hope is in the Lord. Even if this body passes away, this body, which will pass away, is not the only body that I'm in because I'm in Christ. I have been brought into the body of Christ. Now then, the very same spirit that resurrected Christ will resurrect my body. So we are of the saved. And if you're not, and you're hearing this message today, but you think, I don't know that I'm in Christ. And if you are, you know it. So if you say, I don't know that I'm in, whether I'm in Christ or not, let me say that's a pretty good indicator that you're probably not. Or it may be an indicator that God has reached you and you've made a decision for him, but you're not living in the fullness of the power of that decision. Let me tell you, if that's the case, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you. But even if you've never given your, your heart to the Lord, the Holy Spirit invites you to do that today. And you and I, as people who are in Christ, nevertheless can testify to this reality. Our lives are still difficult. We still face challenge. We still die. And people we love die or face challenge or have disease. And so what are we praying for? Sometimes what we pray for is out of our pain, we pray for a release from pain. But the real spirit of redemption the real spirit of salvation, the real spirit of Christ that is in us isn't praying that we would be brought out of pain right now, but rather that we would put our focus on Christ. What he is praying for through us is that the will and purpose of the Father would be fulfilled in and through us. And that's what God is groaning for. God is groaning with us. God is right there with us, bringing to birth in us not only new life, but sanctified life. The Spirit intercedes for us in our weaknesses to enable us to grow in the purposes of God. Hallelujah. So there is a futility that we are living in. The word in the Greek there that can be translated futility, vanity. Uh, Your translation may say something different, but it's to that effect. In fact, in the Greek, there's an article in front of it that uh, would uh, translate as the futility or this futility. And when we look at that passage, I'll describe what I think Paul has in mind there. There is a functionality to that. There's a purpose of God in it. And there's an expectation of God in us. Now, when we come to this section in just a minute, I'm going to talk about what expectation really means from the mind of God and what it really is about when it's rooted in faith because this is the expectation of the faithful and it is empowered by the unction of the Father. This is an old-fashioned word, unction. It means anointed. It comes from the same root in Greek as the the English word anointed does. And so unction 
is in fact anointed and it refers to oil. In fact, specifically, originally, olive oil. Did you know that even in the English language, the word oil for I think hundreds of years meant exclusively olive oil. Unction comes from that same Greek root of the olive tree and olive oil, but it refers to anointing. I think it was just last week that I talked about the anointing of the monarch, the queen of England being anointed with oil, just like the kings of Israel had been anointed with oil. Here I'm talking about the anointing of the spirit. God is filling you with the oil of his spirit. He is giving you the power of his love in order to live in the life of his love, which is to live in holiness. So let's talk first about the groans of corruption and this futility that surrounds us and what purpose it has in the mind of God. Paul here is going to refer back in his language and in his themes to things we've already seen. In Romans chapter 3, I'm taking you here specifically to Romans chapter 5. We looked at this a couple of months ago, back in early March. Paul wrote to them and said, we've been justified through faith and we now have peace with God in Christ. And so we boast, that is, this is where we have our security. This is what we are telling people about. This is the smile on our face, even though we have the pain in our heart. We have this smile in our face because we have this life in our soul. And it's the hope of the glory of God. Now, glory of God is not just the idea of God in all of his beauty. He is beautiful. He is glorious, but it is also more potently, perhaps more powerfully, the reality of his promise that you and I can be one with him, that we can be in him forever. It's eternal life, eternal peace with God. And so we have that glory by faith. You say, I'm, I'm living for heaven. Heaven is here now. I'm not saying there isn't a promise of eternal life. I'm saying you don't have to wait for it. And in fact, you shouldn't. And if you are, you don't understand what eternal life is about because Jesus continually said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. It's the glory of God. In other words, the promise is here now. And you are to be living in that. But no, you can't see it. But it's just like that room that I was in, the delivery room. Meg and Peter were there when, when, when their labor was at hand, but I couldn't see them, but they were there. And so you and I, we can know that even if we can't see Jesus Christ, the spirit of Christ is in us. And that hope is giving us strength and power to endure sufferings. And we understand that sufferings have a purpose. They produce perseverance. Per perseverance refines character. Character is the result of what we are hoping for because it's the character of Christ. Now, he has already said this. So he's bringing us back to this. And he's saying, if we forget this, and we do forget it, just like a woman in labor forgets. Why? Because you're tired. Because it hurts. Because you're human and you're weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But the spirit is greater than the flesh. Amen. So the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And since we're children of God, we are promised to inherit this power. But the only way we're going to experience that is by going through the labor. So God gives us the ability to go through the labor, but he doesn't give us the option to opt out of the labor because the labor has a purpose, which is to bring forth the life. It's kind of crystallizing, right? So if we suffer with Christ, this isn't God saying, all right, I want you to really hurt, to prove to me that you're worthy. He saved us when we weren't worthy. What he wants is to prove to us that we are worthy in him. And so as we suffer with Christ, we learn that. And so we learn that we are being glorified with him. This is why Paul could be beaten and go to prison and have the joy of the Lord in his heart. He wasn't crazy. He was inspired. This is why Stephen, the first martyr of the church, could stand there being stoned by the rocks that were being thrown at him, not stoned with weed, by the way, stoned with rocks. And many of you may have in the past or even today choose to get stoned with weed because that's how you deal with what you're tired, but that only makes you more tired. You say, well, you don't know what kind of 
bud I've got. Let me tell you, I've got a better bud than you. Jesus Christ is my buddy, and he can empower me not just to run away, but to go through with victorious strength. That's what Stephen displayed to the people around him. He said, yeah, Stephen died. Hey, he did. He was going to die anyway, but his death had a purpose. Paul was there on that day, and though Paul didn't see it that day, Ultimately, there would be a day when Paul would write, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But I want to say this revealing to you has a purpose, that what has been revealed to you would be revealed through you. I want you to say that. What has been revealed to me should be revealed through me. Say that. What has been revealed to me should be revealed through me. People should see the Holy Spirit working through you. Has anyone ever said that to you? Good. Then that's fruit. You don't have any credit in that, and you know it. But you have glory in it. It delights you, right? Raise your hand if that's true for you. Yes. Now, if people don't see the Spirit working through you, and if you don't see the fruit of the character of Christ being born out, and if you are not doing the works of God, then how are you in Christ? If Christ is in you, the Spirit is in you. If the Spirit is in you, the Spirit wants to fill you to overflowing, overflowing, like a mess kind of overflowing, like you can't control it, you can't quench it, you can't stop it, and no one else can either. And that's what the Father wants for you. Why wouldn't we want that for ourselves? You know why? Because it means you have to be out of control. Now, I don't mean to say out of control in a wild, reckless, irresponsible, untamed way. What I mean is you have to be controlled by Christ. It means that you have to be a slave of Christ but not in the slave sense of diminishment of your freedom and liberty, but rather in that close partnership in which you are yoked to him. Now, how can you do that if his word isn't in you? So you've got to read the word and let the word read you, as it were, as we sometimes hear that said. But I'll tell you something. You can read the word all day long, and if you are not open to the spirit moving in you, then the word will become simply the letter to you. Not that the word is diminished in its power, but you have not received its revelation. Paul knew the word backwards and forwards when he was on the way to do what he said was the work of God, which was putting Christians to prison and to death. But Paul was wrong. He knew the word, but he did not know the Lord. He knew of the Lord, but when he met Christ, he met the Lord, and then he came into Christ and it completely wreaked havoc with his life, changed his career goals, made him who was a highly favored son of Israel into a despised criminal. It resulted in him going to prison, being beaten supposedly to death many times, and ultimately to his martyrdom. He was put to death for it. And yet, what life has been lived in the 2,000 years since Jesus Christ went to the cross that could compare in our estimation with the life that was led by Paul of Tarsus. Now, that's not because Paul was a remarkable man. You know what Paul said about himself? He was a remarkable man, but you're remarkable too. Paul said, I'm the worst sinner there is. But in Christ and Christ in me, there is glory. And that glory is far greater than the sufferings. You might be saying, well, you're wrong, God, because you don't know how much I've suffered. Friend, no one knows better how much you've suffered than God. Amen. Let me tell you something. God knows far more about your suffering than you do. And God is the only one who can say, I've suffered with you in a way that only God can. Not only does God know more about your suffering than you do, God knows more about your suffering than you and I have yet learned about his love. Maybe it's time to stop focusing on our suffering and start focusing on his love, which is not just an oozy-goozy, feel-good, warm fuzzy, 
but a powerful presentation, revelation of God's righteousness. Because you cannot know God's love without his truth. He speaks his truth in love. He gives his love with truth. His love is righteous. Now, there is unrighteousness around us and sometimes in us, and this is futile. It cannot produce the goodness of God, but God is greater. He will use all things together for good. We're going to get to that next week, right? That's famous out of Romans 8. Here's what Paul is saying. Even though these things are bad, God's goodness is greater. So, because we have an eager expectation that what God has promised, God gives, that God, what God says, God does, therefore, we are living from that source, the source of our hope and strength, which is the reality of God. And all of creation, in fact, demonstrates that this present futility has a purpose. God submitted all of his creation to the reality in which it could be broken. God, who put himself into creation, in a sense. I mean to say that God poured everything of himself into his work. I, I can't imagine that God is not the most dedicated artist and creator. And God, who created out of his own impulse, his own love, knew that in making that creation and in his dedication to freedom, his creatures would reject him disobey him and subject all of creation to futility. God did not desire that. That's what it means when it says not willingly. And you and I do not necessarily desire to suffer. That also is included in that phrase, not willingly. But God said, I am willing for this to happen because I am able to use it for good. That is the hope of God. And it's not just, I hope, I hope, I hope, maybe, maybe, maybe. Instead, the terminology here is saying that is the vision of God. That's what God sees. So God knows. See, God sees the life before you and I do. So God sees it, and what God is saying is, I'll put my spirit in you. You won't be able to see it with your eyes of flesh, but if you start living according to the vision of the spirit, you will see the beatific vision. You will see the beauty and glory of God, and that will be more than enough to give you the hope to carry forward so that that which has been enslaved can be made free and corruption can end and freedom can begin in the glory of the children of God. We know that there are these groanings around us, but we recognize them as labor pains. Something better is coming. And so we live in that expectation. We also have within ourselves these groanings, but the groanings that we are to have are the kinds of groanings that help us to grow. Not complaining, but calling, calling upon God. In fact, this is the very term that shows up in Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. Stephen, an early believer in Christ, who is brought to trial by the Jewish leadership because he is proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, and that is considered heresy at the time. And so they put him on trial. And the testimony that Stephen gives in the book of Acts, chapter 7, is essentially the whole Hebrew Bible, or at least the Torah. He goes through the story of God's creation and of how God delivered his people in order to establish the connection between that covenant and Christ. And in doing so, he references the book of Exodus. He utilizes the Greek translation of that book. And in that, there is a, a, a passage where it says that the children of God were groaning to God. And God says, I have heard the groanings of my children in slavery in Egypt, and I am sending you Moses to deliver them. These kinds of groanings are what you and I have because we live in this present darkness. But what we are praying for is, God, your kingdom come. God, your will be done. God, your liberty be realized and revealed through us. So that's what we are waiting for. The fullness of this delivery to be carried out. The life that has begun to be revealed. As children of God, we not only hope for it, but we expect it with perseverance. That's what the hope really means there. We have this expectation. And going back to Romans 5, Paul said, that is an expectation that will not be disappointed. 
You won't be put to shame because of it in the eyes of God or in the kingdom because God's love, which has promised this hope, is also the power that fulfills it. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, and God puts the assurance that we have been adopted by him into his family in us through the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which is the promise of the Father, as Jesus describes it in Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1. And the Holy Spirit also groans because he is dedicated to helping us in our weakness. This is what Pastor Angie was speaking about earlier in the service. The helper is interceding for us. We sometimes don't even know what to pray for and the way to pray for it. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. God is praying not only for you, but if you are in Christ, God is praying in you. Now, the way that he prays in you is with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What you have here is a kind of Trinitarian expression. That is, Jesus Christ, who knows the hearts of people, has sent the Holy Spirit as the promise of the Father. So the Son knows what's in the heart of people and what's in the mind of God. And the Spirit knows what's in the mind and heart of the Son because the Spirit and the Son and the Father are one. So when the Holy Spirit is praying through you, God is praying for you. Who better to pray for you than God? But you say, well, who is God praying to? Understand this, prayer is about revealing the will of God. It isn't about begging and pleading for things. It's about declaring prophetically the revealed will of God. You don't need to beg and plead. But what you can do is ask. But you ask according to what the Spirit prompts in you so that you would be praying in the Spirit. Now this is a Pentecostal concept. And we are a Pentecostal church. And if anybody is turned off by that, I'm sorry that that would turn you off. I want you to turn on to the word of the Lord. Pastor Angie talked about the birthday of the church, which is the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, what we see is people who are only 50 days out, less than two months from the time that they would have called the worst day of the world, the death of Jesus on the cross. And they're only 50 days out, basically, from the day in which Christ Jesus resurrected. And these people know what it is to suffer, but they are going to suffer more. But what they are doing is praying in the Spirit together. They are unified, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they begin to speak in other tongues. Why? Because... It is by the Spirit that the love of God is revealed. Look at what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter to them, 14, verses 1 to 2. This is right after the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul has said, if I speak in the tongues of angels and men, but I don't have love, I'm just a clanging cymbal. I'm just a loud gong. It's no good to have all these spiritual gifts of prophecy and spiritual language and tongues if I don't have love because love is what it's all about, which is what we see in Romans chapter 8 because God is love. And when we have real love, we are seeing God. So pursue the real love of God, but earnestly desire spirituals is the, is the Greek word, spiritual things or spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. This is not about saying, try to be the person who knows what's going to happen next week. It's not about being a forecaster of the future, although the Spirit of God can show you and make you aware of things. Do you remember over the last five years how often I've stood at this platform and said a time of great shaking is coming? When many things that people rely upon and seem stable will be shaken? When there will be confusion and even death? That was prophetic. I don't say that congratulatory. And somebody could say, well, that's so vague that anybody could say that. Well, not everybody does. And if anybody could, then let them say it. But what needs to be said in the midst of it is God has a purpose through it all. 
And we are called to him and to his purpose. Being prophetic is about revealing the will of God and being a witness to it. And Paul says, you need to pray for that because it's not just something you can choose to do. You have to have the spirit. If you try and do it on your own, you'll be doing it in the flesh and the flesh profits nothing. But when one speaks in a tongue, you're not speaking for the sake of human hearing, but rather to God. Yet in that conversation with God, humans will hear and they may understand because if they could not hear God, they can hear you. And one who is praying in this way is praying in the spirit or by the spirit and making mysteries known. The the notion there is things that are not seen are being made visible. Things that are not heard are being made audible through the spirit. And that's what happened on on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the unction of the Father. It's the promise of the Father. It is the anointing of the Christ. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. It's not something that they generated. It is something that came through the Holy Spirit. But what happened? People in the crowd who were from all different nationalities said, we hear all of them speaking in our language. And what they're doing is praising God. And then Peter taking his stand. And I pray that you would take your stand in this age, the last days, says, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all humankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now, when he says, I'll pour it out on all humankind, what he means is not that every single person is going to be filled with the Spirit, but I will pour it out on anyone who is willing to receive. But when you receive, then you will reveal. And if you are not revealing, then you may have not received. And it is offered. So receive. And reveal. Paul once said, I pray in tongues more than all of you. I don't know if I can say that. But I'd venture to say it's not an unfair bet. Because I pray in tongues every day. Some of you may have no idea what I mean by that. Some of you may have been taught that that's heretical and you're ready to tune out right now. Some of you may just not like that terminology. It feels uncomfortable. Like giving birth? Some people will say, well, yeah, I don't want to give birth because I don't want to go through the pain. It's a choice, I suppose. But I'll tell you, there's something better than the pain. It may make you uncomfortable to hear about tongue-talking in preaching, old-fashioned Pentecostalism. But the Spirit is not coming to make you and I comfortable. He is coming to equip us to deal with the challenge which we face in this present world and to assure us of the promise that we have in the age to come and to utilize us to reveal that reality to the world around us. For 20 years, I lived as a Christian without the assurance of my salvation, always feeling condemned. But there is no condemnation in Christ. But I felt condemnation. For 20 years, I saw it as an effort where I would have to try and get better. But despite all my trying, I never seemed to get better. For 20 years, I lived as a Christian, but I never experienced a vision from God. And when I did have a sense of God's prompting, I had great confusion about what that might mean. And I didn't have any notion that God could use me to pray for somebody else to see them healed or delivered or set free from spiritual bondage. I've lived that way. And if that's what your version of Christianity is, I want to say to you, I know it. I've lived it. And I can tell you this, it is better to be in the Spirit. Now, you say, every Christian has the Spirit. Yes, but not every Christian has the fullness of the Holy Spirit operating through them. And yet every Christian is supposed to. This is the promise of the Father. And it is absolutely essential to understanding the will of God for us and to experiencing the power of God's love at work through us. 
In your workplace, do people come to you and ask you to pray for them when they're sick? Raise your hand if that's true. You see that? Now, do you think that's common? Why do people come to you and ask you to pray for them when they're sick? Because they know you believe and because they believe that your prayer has a power. Now, somebody might say, well, they're just hedging their bet. Maybe they are. Go ahead. I know my prayer will make a difference because my prayer isn't my prayer. My prayer is of the Spirit. He's praying in a way you can't hear. It's a groaning too deep to be uttered. It goes beyond words, but it is of God, and it's powerful. Now, raise your hand if you've seen people healed because of prayers that you prayed. Not you, but your prayers were the instruments of healing. How about deliverance from demonic stronghold? I've seen that. I've seen that. I've seen people who were opposed to coming to Christ, who came to Christ because of the power of a prophetic testimony made to them or because of the power of intercession prayed over them. And that's what we are for. We are not meant to be living this life just trying to feel good from one day to the next and get through until we can fly off to heaven. That is not the will of the Father nor the purpose of Christ. We are made to be miracle prayers, to do the works that Jesus did. And I want to say, if you have not experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you need to. Because you will never, never, never know the fullness of God's intention for you without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. This is not something that was negotiable. It is not something that was peripheral. Jesus said before he ascended to the Father, wait until you have received the promise of the Father. You wait. It's time to ask for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's time to believe for the wholeness and fullness of the Holy Spirit to be at work in you. It doesn't mean that you become infallible. It doesn't mean that you never stumble or sin. It does mean, however, that you can address that in the Spirit. And you know what? The Spirit will be addressing it in you. And you want that. I said there were no clock. You want to get to your, to your brunch, to your luncheon? I want you to get the spirit. That's what I want for you. And if I could get that for you, talking another four hours, I would talk another four hours. But the reality is, I don't and cannot give to you that which only God can give. But I also will tell you that God has given it. When Peter stood and said to them, these are the last days and this is the promise of the Father, how much latter are these days than then? 2,000 years have passed. So if those were last days and the word of God cannot be contradicted, then you can have no doubt that these days are even later than those which means that the promise is even more important. And if someone would say that that promise was only for that day, then why is it that when Peter went to pray for the household of Cornelius, the Gentiles, and he, he was telling them about Christ, they were filled with the Spirit. And they began to manifest in a way that could be heard and was recognized as being the Pentecostal blessing. They were praying in tongues, my friends, and praising God in languages they hadn't learned. Why is it that when Paul went to the church of Ephesus and said to them, have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is where he starts. They say, all we have received is the baptism of John, water baptism. And then Paul prays for them and they manifest in a way that can be seen and heard, which is most likely that they were praying in tongues, that Pentecost blessing. It isn't about tongues, it's about the Spirit. But the Spirit wants to reveal through you something that cannot be heard except by the Spirit, something that cannot be said except by the Spirit, and something that cannot be defeated or broken by the world because it's the love of God at work in you. In Christ, we receive that love, and it sets us free from sin and death. But in the Spirit, we are called to reveal that love to the world around us by being intercessors who are themselves receiving the intercession of the Spirit. So that not only is the Spirit praying in us, but he's praying through us 
so that the will of the Father would overwhelm everything with his glorious, redeeming, victorious love. That's what we're going to talk about next week, how God, through these things, makes us more than conquerors. But I want to do this right now. And if you're at home watching, I ask you to to do this. I want you to ask for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And what I mean by that is, I want you to ask that the experience of the first believers on the day when the church was brought to birth would be your experience. Because there is absolutely nothing and nowhere in the scriptures that says that it shouldn't. And there is an overwhelming testimony of the scriptures that says that it should, that it will, that it is your birthright in Christ. I want you to experience real freedom. I want you to experience real love. I want you to experience the insight of the spirit that only God can give. And nothing can keep you from that except you. Satan cannot keep you from it. A fallen world cannot keep you from it. And God won't keep you from it. But you can close yourself off. And you can say, I don't believe that because maybe I was taught that that's wrong or maybe because I'm uncomfortable with the idea or simply because I tried before and it never worked. It's not something to try. It's something to ask. Ask of the Father. The Father knows what you have need of before you ask. Maybe you were one of those who thought, I prefer to ask mom because mom is more agreeable than dad. Well, the father loves you with a mother's heart. The mother spirit loves you according to the father's will. God, your parent, wants you to be apparently his. That is visibly, knowably his. He wants to show up and show off through you. He wants to fulfill his will and kingdom purposes through you. Not just you alone either, but through this community into which you and I are called. If you are someone who has experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the past, remember that that baptism came to you to fill you and to remind you to rely upon the Spirit of God. Come back to that place of openness and readiness for miracle working. Come back to that place of humility and trust. If you've never asked for or believed that the Holy Spirit could move in you in a way that goes beyond your understanding, that as the prophet Joel said and the apostle Peter said, that you would prophesy, dream dreams, have visions, that's of God. It is of God. God desires that ye would be able to in you and through you directly communicate his will and purpose. Open to it. He loves you and wants to give you the fullness of his spirit. Lord, we come to you today with open hearts, with open hands, with an open request. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask if you would raise your hands up to the Lord like that. For those of you who have a fullness of the Spirit that manifests in a uh, spiritual language, pray in your spiritual language right now. Everyone, pray with thanksgiving to God for what He's already given, with hopeful expectation of what He will give. And now I pray for you in the Spirit. These things are spoken and said because they reside within the will and heart of God. These things are revealed and declared because they advance the kingdom of God. These things are rooted in the word. These things are suited from the Lord. These things are fruitful in Christ. Receive of these things, these spiritual gifts. Lord, pour out your spirit, I pray, upon these your faithful. Lord, I ask that you would pour out the spirit of adoption upon those who have received you, that they would be assured from within that you are their father, that they belong to you that your love for them is without condemnation, 
that your correction is an evidence of love, that your spirit is alive within them. Lord, for those who have not received you, who have not given their life to you, I ask that right now you would move powerfully, presently, where they are, that your presence would become palpable to them, Lord, like a glory cloud, Shekinah, that they would feel your arms embracing them, that they would hear your, your voice in their ear, that they would sense the warmth of your breath on their neck, that they would even feel their hands being held by you. And some of them are thinking, how can that be? It is God present with you. Behold, I, the living one, I bring you to life. These are the words of Christ. Trust in me. Give yourself to me says the living Christ, and I will give unto you my spirit and my inheritance. I will make you more than conquerors. I will enable you to sustain. I will equip you to persevere. I will enlighten you as to your guidance and counsel. I will unify you. I will give you peace. Hallelujah. Lord, we give you thanks. We praise your name. We pray that this place, Lord of PCF, would become known as a Pentecostal place. A place, Lord, not of division in doctrine, but rather of unity in the spirit, of fullness in the spirit, of movement in the spirit, and the full release of all the gifts that equip and enable us, Lord, to carry forward your work in the spirit. And of all the fruit of Christ, that is the very demonstration of your character. We give you love, Lord, and thanks and praise in the mighty name of Jesus.